secularization and religion. Now, I've kind of pinched a bunch of slides from Steve Bruce, who I know reasonably well at University of Aberdeen and who is a um, sort of the, or one of the preeminent theorists of secularization uh, and uh, has, has really written a lot of interesting things and he likes, he doesn't sort of sugarcoat his message. So, you know, his, the title of his book is God is Dead, you know, so it's very, very direct. But, uh, so I'm going to first give you his, his argument garnished with some other stuff on secularization. And then we're going to look at some of the competing arguments to the secularization thesis. Then we're going to look a bit at uh, political Islam. And then we'll come back to secularization and say, you know, how is it that we see or, or potentially see different things going on? Islamic revival, religious revival on the one hand. On the other hand, religious decline, secularization. How can this be, be reconciled? Uh, so with, with Bruce, he sticks pretty close to the evidence, and so uh, we'll first review trends in religious decline as he sees it in Britain in particular, but also elsewhere. Uh, there's two real key differences, uh, two key differences in secularization. One is social secularization, if you like, uh, which is a situation where everyone could still be religious, but religion doesn't have power in public. So religious authorities don't control hospitals, schools, so on. That would be an example of social secularization, the, if you like, a separation of church and state in, a very, in very crude terms. So that's the first kind of secularization we're, we're going to talk about. The second is to do with individual belief and membership of religious institutions. Uh, so that is, what, if, you, if you think about it, it's kind of an individual kind of secularization. Now, he has three types here. I'm collapsing two and three into the individual type. But yes, there is a difference between people who uh, attend regularly at worship and those who don't attend but still believe, um, which is kind of number three, whereas Bruce is saying even in number three, when it comes to private religious beliefs, there's been a decline. So it's the decline in all three of these things, the power of religion in public life, number two, um, the individual's involvement in worship, and number three, individual belief in the supernatural. So in terms of the number one, the social secularization, the power of, uh, if you like, church over state, religion in public life, uh, Bruce points to, for example, the impotence, what he calls the impotence of the churches to regulate blasphemy, uh, social mores such as gambling or sexual relations, say before marriage, uh, and also shops being open on Sunday, Sabbatarianism, all of those, in all of those areas, the church has lost power. Uh, and with the new Scottish Parliament and Welsh Assembly in the late 1990s, there was no representation from clerics, whereas in the House of Lords, Anglican bishops do have representation. So that's an important difference, Bruce says, shows that, there's that, these, uh, that religions become less important since the time the Anglican bishops were given uh, a place in the House of Lords, which is clearly a connection between religion and politics, church and state, symbolized by the presence of those bishops in the House of Lords. Uh, and so that there's now even pressure to reform the House of Lords to cut that link between the Church of England and Parliament. So that's 
on the power of religious institutions or, or social secularization. Now, what about what we're going to talk more about, uh, which is individual secularization? That is the decline in religious attendance, religious belief, religious membership. Uh, and again, sticking with Great Britain, and these are figures from Steve Bruce. Uh, church membership, 1900 to 1990, you see that drop off um, after 1930, but especially after 1950. Church attendance is maybe a better one. There was an English church census in 1851, and then there was something similar taken in 1957. Now, you can imagine the methods might have been a bit different, but still, uh, you can see that trend since 1957 uh, of a, a drop from roughly 20% of the English population attending church weekly in 1957 to you know, in the order of 5 to 10% in 1998, and it's continued to slip since then. It's covered all denominations. That red line is the Roman Catholic Church, which you can see the um, church attendance slipping from about 2 million in 1979 to under 1.5 in 1998. The Catholics were always seen as more religious than the Church of England, at least that was the, the belief in the 1970s and 80s, and that's clearly shifted. Uh, the Anglicans have declined in, in tandem with the Catholics. Now, there are some denominations that have resisted this decline, and those are mainly the Pentecostal and independent new churches. Uh, and we'll want to talk about that because it represents something potentially that goes against the secularization thesis. But just for now, you can see for the big churches a pattern of decline. Similarly with uh, religious identification, and, and this showed up, uh, and this is just, uh, this comes from 2001, so that's 10 years ago. I'll tell you a bit about 2011, but 2001, you can see it's very clear that amongst the young population, there's more people saying that they have no religion than are saying they're Christian. By the time we get to the 55-plus category, the older population, uh, almost 90% of them say they're Christian, and really very small proportion saying there are no religion. Uh, so that's a very distinct pattern, and, and you'll have noticed, or you may, some of you may have seen the results of the 2011 census, which showed a decline in the proportion of people in England and Wales saying they are Christian from 72% to 59 So quite a, a sharp decline even since this graph uh, came out. Church of England baptisms as percentage of live births since 1960 has kind of gone south uh, and doesn't show any signs of rebounding. So that's another indicator of the slippage of the impact of religion in personal life. Uh, so there seems to be this trend then of declining church attendance, uh, which is pretty steady over the last few decades, and young people are much less uh, likely to attend and be members of churches than older people. Uh, what about religious beliefs? Do people, okay, some such as Grace Davies say, well, people aren't attending, but they still believe. Uh, and here Bruce is, is saying, well, actually, that's not the case, that if you look at the British Social Attitude Survey, um, and what these lines essentially show, the red set of dots is religious affiliation, people who say they are Christian. The uh, green is attendance at least once a month, and the blue is belief sure that God exists. And all three of those lines are going downward, which is an indicator that those people who were born in 1982, which was sort of the youngest uh, year for this, so people born in 1982 who were around age 20 in this 
survey uh, were much less likely to believe, attend, and affiliate than people born early in the 20th century who were much older. Uh, so that pattern, now, you might make the argument, well, once those people who are really young in this survey get to be really old, they're going to be just as religious. I don't want to get into the fine detail of this. Just to say there seems to be a link between uh, attendance, belief, and affiliation. So decline on all three of those dimensions. Another argument that's leveled against the secularization thesis, however, is to say, well, people aren't members of established religious institutions, but they are increasingly members of alternative or they are expressing their spirituality in an alternative way, transcendental med meditation or uh, new religious movements. Um, and Bruce is keen to rebut this argument, and he, he cites evidence from a survey that was conducted uh, in the town of Kendall in northern England. And this showed that actually most people who said, there was only 1.6% of the population that said that they were involved in alternative spiritual activities in a given week in Kendall. So it's a very small proportion of the, of the population that this is involving. And secondly, of those people, almost half said they were just in it for physical therapy like massage and yoga or aromatherapy. So it's nothing really spiritual. It's just kind of physical or exercise or whatever. So that, uh, therefore, leaves only about 0.9%. That is almost nobody who's involved in um, new religious movements, according to Bruce's evidence from this Kendall survey. He says, so what he's saying is really uh, these new religious movements and alternative spirituality is a really tiny phenomenon. It doesn't really have any major effect on the overall trend toward secularization. Uh, now, this is a rather complex graph pulled from Bruce's book, and I'm not going to go through it in entirely, in, in all its detail, but it's just to say a lot of people have thought about what is it that drives the secularization process. And Bruce has a theory and others have a theory which I'm going to try and summarize quite quickly. So for Bruce, he says uh, you have a different pattern in Protestant Christianity from Catholic Christianity and other kinds of Christianity and other religions. But generally speaking, it's modernization that drives secularization. Uh, one aspect of modernization is individualism, people essentially rejecting uh, established authority and breaking off on their own. Now, initially in Protestantism, you know, what we see with the Protestant Reformation is a break from the authority of Rome, so that's kind of a, a first break, first individualism if you like. Then within Protestantism you get breaks, so instead of just the Church of England you've now got Methodism and Baptism. and then. You get further splits, and you know in Scotland you've got the Free Church and, as well as the Presbyterians, and then you get further splits and so on. So for him, he's arguing that that process of crumbling and fracturing actually uh, advances the process of secularization because no single denomination can dominate and impose religion, a uniform kind of religion, on the public sphere. So because religion is fragmented uh, into different sects, they aren't able to create this religious establishment and keep church-dominating state, religion-dominating public life. So that's one kind of secularization. Second form he talks about is the enlightenment and rationality uh, and the differentiation of society. And now what's, what's that talking about? Essentially that's saying religion, instead of 
permeating your everyday life and everything you do. It's maybe just a few hours on a Sunday. Instead of the hospital, the recreation, the education, everything you do being uh, under the rubric of religion. So instead of the church running the hospitals, the church running the recreation centers, that now becomes independent of the church. So those institutions break away. The government provides you with health care. Uh, what religion does shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. So it becomes pretty small in your life. And that process means that religion is just less important. Even if you still attend church, religion is just a smaller compartment of your life than it used to be. That, so that's kind of two arguments around secularization. Now there's a third aspect of, of modernization that's important, and that's equality. And here it's about the idea that there are many different religions and they all have a claim to rights and equality with each other. So the Catholics in, in Britain um, have to be treated equally, have to be given the right to vote, and so on, because of equality. So that then creates a more relativistic view of religion. Instead of my religion is the only true religion, and everybody must, uh, must be of my religion in this society, actually there is more of a toleration of difference. Uh, and that leads to um, a relativistic outlook, a view that says, well, actually, maybe there's some truth in other faiths, and so on. There was a, an interesting book which came out a few years ago on American religion by Robert Putnam and, 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 uh, by Putnam and Campbell, which suggested that most Americans believe that people of other faiths uh, could get to heaven. That is, there was nothing, you didn't have to be a member of you know, the Catholic Church or uh, the Southern Baptist to be able to get into heaven. And that actually goes against what's written in the Bible. And what's, so it's very clear that people are not uh, accepting the theology that comes from even their own pastors, which is quite interesting. So there's this kind of relativistic view, all religions have worth, etc. So that's, that's a very different outlook. And that can lead, for Bruce, to uh, religious decline. Because once you think, well, actually, it's not my worldview is not the only worldview. There's other worldviews. Actually, you start maybe to start to question your own worldview. Um, okay, and then he, I'm not going to talk too much about this. The, the the other thing is that yeah, growing diversity because you get these breakaway sects, and maybe you have different religious groups coming in through migration. So it leads to a more relativistic outlook. So Bruce's theory then is that this differentiation of society, which is part of modernization, um, leads to a diversity of faiths, diversity of sects, which then means society and the government needs to be tolerant. It can't say everybody's, everyone's got to be a member of the free church and forget everybody else, they're going to have to conform, because then you've got a problem with social order. So in order to ensure social harmony, the uh, authorities have to kind of release their grip on religion. And so that's a break between church and state sets going that secularization process. So that's the first, that's if you like social secularization, the break between religion and public life. But then there's the second kind, which is individuals no longer believing and being members of religious institutions. Uh, so where does this come from? Well. Just to say, I mean, I've talked through this argument about relativism and how, with many different religions, people take a different, more relativistic view of, of faith. That's number one. But the other part of this is that Bruce's opponents, those who challenge the secularization thesis, say 
that only applies, Bruce's theory only really applies in places like Britain, in Western Europe. And Western Europe is an exception in the world in terms of its secularism. Uh, so a lot of uh, religious sociologists in the US, such as Rodney Stark, argue that actually having many different competing religious Right, yeah, so that, you're right, you put your finger on it. That's the counter-argument that says when you've got many different religious brands, it's like a free market and groups are competing and so they're innovating uh, to provide a product people want. So it's a bit like the argument of the free market versus state-controlled stores in, in the Soviet Union, for example. So for Stark and Yanakone and others from what's known as the supply-side uh, school, they would say... Uh, when you have a state church like the Church of England or the Catholic Church in Italy, the church gets lazy. It doesn't have to compete against anybody for members, so it doesn't really care about parishioners. Whereas in the U.S., where there is no established church, uh, you, you have to innovate, you have to compete. So you have innovations such as you know, tent revivalism in the 19th century or um, mega churches and, and you know... Uh, different styles of worship. So you have these, these new forms of churches that have uh, screens and videos and, and rock music and all these kinds of innovations that are att attempting to appeal to new categories of demand. So for, for Stark, his argument is in fact that uh, the diversity is a strength. Uh, so it strengthens religion. Now, that argument has been tested in many different countries. And I think I am correct in saying that um, in most cases, it's not been found to be the case. That is, countries that have more religious diversity do not seem to have higher levels of religiosity. Now, the U.S. is an exception, but it might be an exception for other reasons than its diversity. Or maybe its diversity did lead to stronger religion in the past, but may not be continuing so far. But it is interesting to look at the United States because in contrast to Western Europe, you can see this is a... Um, some survey evidence on weekly church attendance uh, from 1950 to about 1990, and you can see there is no decline in the proportion attending church. It's around 40% attending church weekly in the United States in this period. So from this evidence, it looks pretty stable, unlike the declining graphs we saw for, for Britain and other parts of Europe. Now, the update to this is that since about... Since the late 1990s, uh, weekly church attendance has started to decline in the United States, and the youngest age groups, 18 to 25, show quite considerable fall-off in attendance. And that's never been seen before in U.S. data. So it looks, at least, that the U.S. is starting to follow the European trend. But having said that, um, the U.S. is no, there's no question that religious attendance remains sort of two or three times higher in the U.S. than in, in Europe. So that's a, a significant difference that needs to be explained. And I'm not sure I'll have time to get into all the theories behind why religion is stronger in the U.S. than in uh, Europe. And it covers, incidentally, across all religious groups, although there are important differences by denomination. So the more conservative fundamentalist denominations are doing much better than the liberal denominations. And that's, again, something we'll want to talk about. So secularization, then, just to summarize that, 
the argument is that religion has lost impact on politics and on society. So social secularization is occurring. Number two, the proportion of non-believers is rising. Um, and according to Steve Bruce, one of the drivers for this is differentiation, that is, more and more of the functions of society uh, are being undertaken by secular um, organizations or by the government, and so rather than by religion. And so the influence of religion in one's life is shrinking. And that even when, you, when it comes to religious interest groups, they are justifying their case not in terms of what the Bible says, but in terms of religion's impact on the health of society. So some have argued religious people live longer, are healthier, are happier, and so on. But that argument is actually a secular argument. They're not saying you should be religious because it says so in the Bible. They're saying, well, you should be religious because look at these health effects and, and so on. So that, that is actually a very different kind. It's actually, for Bruce, they are, trying, they are coming onto the secular turf to argue their case rather than sticking with a religious argument. Now, there are a number of countercurrents to this. We've talked, I, I touched on this idea of the rise of fundamentalist churches. Uh, conservative Protestant churches are doing a lot better in retaining their members than the liberal churches. And that's a very interesting phenomenon. The same thing's happening in Judaism. The liberal Judea, uh, Jewish synagogues, the Reform and Conservative, they have been losing members and that's true in Britain as well, whereas the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox have been increasing. So that's, again, reflecting this pattern of more fundamentalist religious denominations doing much better than liberal ones. Um, and also, in terms of the role of religion in politics, the religious right, the new Christian right, uh, was a very strong force in the 1990s. It's no longer as strong, but it still has an impact on U.S. politics. Uh, you wouldn't be able to get elected as president uh, and, being, and declare yourself openly atheist, for example. So there is still a strong influence of the Christian right in, in America and of religion in general in American politics. So in that sense, we can say that secularization has not completely swept the West. Um, now, there has been some movement, for example, on uh, gay marriage in the U.S. That's a recent change of the last 10 years. And now Obama, for example, uh, has come out in favor. That's something that no American politician would have done 10 years ago. So that does suggest, perhaps, that in some parts of, of public life, uh, the, the Christian right is losing influence. Okay, so what then, and, and finally we're going to talk uh, in a bit more detail about Islam because the story very much in Western Europe and even to some extent the U.S. has been one of religious decline, at least from the data. Uh, and However, in, in, when it comes to Islam, that's much less clear. Uh, in fact, a lot of the, uh, the evidence seems to suggest the reverse, the revival of religion. So how do we square that with secularization? Uh, very dramatic photo, I know, but the rise of Political Islam, the rise, uh, the Islamic revival, which is not necessarily political but religious, both of these things have been occurring since the 1970s. Uh, so this is a return of religion. It's not a decline of religion. How does secularization take account of this? Okay. So, well, let's, I'm not sure I'll have time to get through all the detail, but I want to try here. So 
how do we, how might we account for the rise of political Islam? Now, one reason potentially for the rise of political Islam is that it is a, a kind of nationalist response, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. That is, Islamism and nationalism share a lot in common, which takes political Islam out of the sphere of spirituality only and moves it into the sphere of politics and nationalism as well. So, for example, one piece of evidence for that argument is that political Islam has mainly been active in areas where there are also nationalist agendas. So, for example, Palestine uh, versus Israel is a nationalist conflict. Chechnya versus Russia, Moros versus Catholic Filipinos. Uh, likewise, in places like Iran, Turkey, and Egypt, there are issues uh, of national identity at play and that are being contested. So this, this overlap between nationalism and political Islam is important. Now, there is an international dimension. So I've said that most of the political Islamist movements seem to have a national agenda. That, that, that is, the Iranian political Islamists, the Turkish political Islamists, Egyptian political Islamists have been concerned with Turkey, Egypt, so on, their own country. However, there's also an international dimension, and that's important. So there has been a transfer of ideas and organizations with the Muslim Brotherhood linked to Hamas, for example, uh, as one example of that. So how you get a spread from one country to another. And also the international Salafi movement uh, from sponsored by Saudi Arabia, but then also uh, branching out elsewhere. So there's international uh, spread of ideas. There's also international emulation uh, in the jihadist, the sort of violent end of political Islam, because most of political Islam not violent. We're just talking about a very small uh, part of that movement, uh, jihadi um, political Islam. But there you do see emulation, that is, the copycat phenomenon, initially with some of the uh, al-Qaeda branches post-Bin Laden, but and now with ISIS as well. So this idea of uh, an international spirit, if you like, and battles on many fronts. So there is this international dimension to political Islam as well. But what I want to talk about is uh, what are the causes of this, of this rise, first of all. And I think the, one of the arguments is that the rise of political Islam is not so much an international phenomenon, even though there are international elements to it, as it is a domestic phenomenon which originates in particular national settings. Hence that connection between nationalism and Islamism. And there are three important theories of, about the rise of political Islam. And this is an important point here. That is, if you're going to make a, you know, construct an argument about what has led to uh, political Islam and, and, and the rise in its influence, we can think of three separate types of argument. One is an economic argument that it's to do with modernizing economic changes. The second is a cultural argument that it is to do with various cultural pressures and intellectual and spiritual developments. And third is a political argument that it is to do with either domestic politics or international geopolitics of particularly the Middle East region and also uh, Western Asia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India. But this theme of nationalism is going to run through 
a lot of what we talk about because nationalism has been quite important in the post-colonial period. So during the colonial period, when Britain and France in particular were influential in the Middle East and in South Asia, both Islamists and secular nationalists opposed the colonizers. So they were on the same side. But there was always a tension between the secular nationalists who were inspired by socialism in particular and the Islamists who were inspired by religion. What happens is that it's the secular nationalists who take power from the colonizers, generally, in the Middle East. So the Ba'ath Party in Syria, uh, Gaddafi in Libya, uh, the Shah in Iran, uh, you have also Ataturk in Turkey, Turkey as a secular uh, society, the PLO in Palestine, all of these movements, uh, and, and, and Saddam in Iraq and so on, all these movements are uh, secular nationalist in the orientation. And the reason that they are secular nationalists is they see nationalism as modern, and what they're trying to do is put behind them uh, the, a past that was seen as backward, where religious authorities had power, and that this weakened uh, Muslim societies. And so what they want to do is, is modernize. The classic example of this is Kemal Ataturk in Turkey, who got rid of the caliphate and established the Turkish Republic in 1924, explicitly secular. Uh, and this, a similar thing happens in Iran. And in, to the extent where they suppress religious students, even, and, and they, in Iran they even mandated that um, everybody had to wear Western dress and, and that you couldn't wear religious dress. So that's how powerful the secular nationalism was in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, and it's in this period that, that Islam and the religious authorities are repressed. And this is really the incubation period for political Islam in much of the Middle East. And the post-colonial nation states, the secular nationalists, the Nasser's and Shah's and, and Ataturk's come to be seen as the enemy, uh, and nationalism as a Western import, and therefore that loyalty to the nation is loyalty to a foreign concept, concept foreign to Islam. Um, there is a similarity, too, between political Islam and Protestantism. And this is where some have argued that actually political Islam is very much a modern movement. It's not a traditional movement because it seeks radical change, through sometimes through revolution, which is a very modern concept inspired by Marxism. Uh, it's impatient with evolution. It wants change quickly and politically. So that is kind of a modern way of looking at things. And that's what John Gray mentions in a lot of his writings on this subject. Uh, so here's just a list of places. I'm not going to get into every country and how there's this tension. But nationalism, secular nationalism, and religion are in tension. We mentioned last time when we talked about nationalism, some see nationalism as a secular religion. So in the French Revolution, the overthrow of the ancient regime which was a, a regime based on the king and the church. That was overthrown in favor of a regime based on the people, that is the nation. And there was a strong anti-clerical, anti-church strain to the French Revolution. So nationalism can be a, an anti-religious secular movement. And we see that very much in the Middle East. 
so Islamism, what happens, of course, is that the secular nationalist regimes in Libya, Iran, Turkey, Egypt, elsewhere, stagnate. The economies don't develop very much. Uh, and there are also a series of setbacks, such as the 1967 Six-Day War, or sorry, the 1967 War, the loss of Palestine, uh, the defeat of four Muslim countries, uh, Muslim Arab countries by Israel in 1967. So that's a major blow. So these secular nationalist regimes are seen to have failed to deliver. And, that, and it's in that context that Islam, or political Islam, increases its appeal. But that's not to say that the cause of the rise of political Islam is exclusively political. We want to look at a whole set of explanations. The first set of explanations is the economic or structural. Uh, people, uh, writers such as uh, the late Fred Halliday or Gilles Kepel uh, talk about the role of modernization of the economy as upsetting the existing social order and that creates some of the grievances that give rise to political Islam. So first of all, the growth of cities, the, and not, the, the large expansion in places like Algiers, Istanbul, um, Cairo. Uh, these cities are growing rapidly uh, due to rural-urban migration, and that, that's disruptive. And also the social roles. New social strata are rising, such as government bureaucrats, uh, employees in pro large corporations, Whereas those who used to have status, such as the Bazari merchants or clerical students, uh, lose status and, and, and their roles are disrupted. And, and that's what creates a certain amount of alienation. And of course, the Bazari merchants and the clerical students are in the forefront of the Iranian Revolution in 1979, which is the first important uh, expression of political Islam that, that results in, um, in success, taking power. There's also an analogy with other societies that were modernizing, such as Germany in the late 19th century, where lots of people moved from the country to the town. This is dislocating because people are used to the social order in a small community, and that's disrupted when they move to the city. So these sorts of modernizing processes then create alienation, which then political Islam can feed on. And the Muslim Brotherhood is a good example. It grew and spread most widely in these urban slum areas in places like Cairo that, are, that were populated by people who'd moved in from the countryside. So that seems to square with this structural explanation. And lastly, of course, a rise in inequality with modernization. You have a group of people who become wealthier while a lot of people remain poor. So that's kind of the economic explanation in a nutshell. Against this, to some extent, is the cultural argument, uh, which has been made by writers such as Sami Zubaida uh, of this university. He's, he's Professor Emeritus in our department. Uh, he's written a lot of interesting work on political Islam and Islamic law. So for Z Zubaida, uh, his argument is that it's not economics and economic modernization and urbanization that really matters. It's, it's what modern ideas do to Islam. And, and those modern ideas are chiefly about rejection of established authority and an emphasis on revolution rather than evolution. So it's a rejection of uh, established, Mus even established Muslim authorities, the Al-Ajjar University in Cairo, uh, the established interpreters of Islam being rejected in favor of 
divergent interpretations. Uh, the, and, and in addition, uh, one could argue that taking the culture out of Islam, deculturating Islam, as uh, Olivier Roy has argued, basically boiling religion down to its essentials, universal precepts that hold in any part of the world, regardless of cultural inheritance, regardless of ethnicity. That detraditionalized, stripped-down Islam is arguably a modern way of looking at religion. It's, it's, it's taking a very rational approach, uh, rationalizing religion, if you like. And that's, for some authors, uh, what lies behind Salafism and its appeal, the appeal of uh, Islamic fundamentalism, is that it is precisely in tune with modern, a modern way of looking at an idea. That is, why do we have differences in the interpretation, depending on whether you're in Bangladesh or whether you're in Saudi Arabia, actually should be standardized and homogenized into a decultured Islam. So that's another way in which modernization can be seen to have fueled um, political Islam. Now, there are also other aspects which Zubaydah raises to do with nationalism. So one is that political Islam is about territory and power. It's not just about uh, theology. It's anti-Western, so in that sense, there's, it's nationalist because it has another. There's us and them. And the us-them dynamic is, is absolutely central to nationalism. So in that sense, a link to nationalism. Uh, and in addition, if you look at the leadership of political Islam, it is not the poorest of the poor. Uh, quite the opposite. Often people with uh, strong, uh, you know, well-educated, better-off parts of society. Um, so that would then suggest that economic grievances of poor people is not what's driving necessarily the rise of political Islam. Uh, and then Halliday talks about the Iranian Revolution and says they were pretty explicit that this was not going to make people richer. Uh, that the, the Iranian Revolution was not just about, it was not at all about quote unquote making melons cheaper. Uh, and, and in fact, quite the reverse, it, it was even about denying materialism uh, to some degree. Uh, and, and, and again, likewise, the leadership of, of these of political Islam do not appear to come from dispossessed parts of society. Although, of course, there is an argument that uh, the clerics and the bazaari merchants had lost, to some extent, their position in society. But against that, uh, others say, well, actually, this was not about blocked career advancement or self-interest. It was, it was more about culture. Uh, now, the third kind of argument for the rise of political Islam I've touched on already is, is political and geopolitical, that it has to do with events in the world, and it has to do with, uh, not, first of all, domestic politics around the failure of secular Baathism and, and secular nationalism, but also the post-Cold War period. Uh, you're, you're probably familiar with the Soviet-Afghan War of 1979-87, where Al-Qaeda first originated. And what happens during the Soviet-Afghan War is that the Mujahideen, the, uh, the, you know, the local Afghan uh, political Islamists, if you like, are co-opted into the struggle against communism. And that it's in this period you get international volunteers coming from all over the Muslim world to fight in Afghanistan against the Soviets. Uh, on, and, and so it is there that that's, this is where you see the origin of Al-Qaeda and of the latter-day jihad. 
Um, and then you get, after the end of that war, what's known as blowback, fighters returning to their home countries, such as places such as Algeria, where there's a civil war, uh, Egypt. So these jihadis are bringing their, their military experience and their ideology back to their home countries. That ideology has been cross-fertilized by meeting people of different nationalities who share the same ideology. And so Al-Qaeda is formed in, in Afghanistan. And that's one political route. But that's I'm talking there only about violent jihadism, which is only a small piece of what we're talking about. There's also developments in terms of a weakening of, of Marxism. So after the end of the Cold War, Marxism is no longer a viable alternative. And Marxism had been very important for a lot of regimes in the Middle East. So that's gone. You have to replace it with something else. The natural successor is Islamism because it's untainted by failure and also it's untainted by um, Western or American uh, hegemony. And, and, and so in that sense, it's con congenial to the uh, spirit of the time. And then you have a, a series of events. Uh, the Intifada in Israel, um, First and Second Gulf Wars, and so on, which arguably add fuel to the fire. So here, then, is, is this is a political and geopolitical explanation for the rise of political Islam. Uh, now, you know, I've summarized a lot of material relatively quickly, but it's just to say that in looking at political Islam, what we found is that far from declining, religion has been expanding. Mosques being built at a large rate, uh, in increasingly conservative ways of dressing in most parts of the Muslim world. So uh, women covering themselves. In Egypt, in the 1960s and 70s, in much, much of the Muslim world, women didn't cover themselves, but uh, today they do. So that shows a shift. It shows a shift towards piety. It's very hard to square that with the secularization thesis. So how then do secularization theorists respond to uh, a phenomenon like Islamism? Well, Steve Bruce would argue, I'm not saying my theory is a universal theory. I'm only saying it applies to uh, Western societies. So societies that have conditions similar to those in Western Europe, so the US, Australia, perhaps parts of Latin America, uh, are covered by his theory. So he, he argues that I'm, I'm restricting my theory only to uh, the West. Now, there are other writers, such as Ron Englehart and Pippa Norris, who've written a book called Sacred and Secular, who say, actually, no, the theory applies to all parts of the world. And we, we remember we encountered Englehart's argument about post-materialism. Once people have enough money and security, they become less uh, religious, they become more liberal in, in many ways. Uh, and so I think for Engelhardt, he would argue, well, these are turbulent parts of the world. They're going through modernization. They're going through growing pains. And for those reasons, there's a lot of insecurity about it, and that's why religion is, is reviving there. But given enough time, and it'll go the same way of religion in the West. Uh, so that would kind of be, I think, Engelhardt's argument. Uh, Bruce says that you know there are Similarly, in some ways, he says, you know, religion can experience periodic revivals when there is upheaval and dislocation. So even though the general trend is towards decline, there are periods. One such period was the mid-19th century in uh, Britain, or, and also the 
early to mid-19th century in the U.S. when you had what's called the Great Awakening, uh, which was a, a spread of um, revivalistic Christianity, which coincided with the opening up of the frontier. Um, so during, and, and in Britain, uh, evangelicalism coincides with the Industrial Revolution urbanization. So in these periods of upheaval, dislocation, urbanization, that's when you get uh, religion, you know, religious revivals, according to Bruce. And this can also perhaps be extended to China, where clearly Christianity is growing very rapidly there. Uh, this, for Bruce, I think he would also ascribe this to large-scale social transformation, urbanization that's occurring in China. Um, there's also another aspect to, um, to religion that the in the secularization thesis, Bruce argues that where religion can overlap with nationalism, it can stop itself from declining. So that is where religion finds a secular job to do, it can maintain itself or even grow. When we think about the Muslim world, when we think about Islam, uh, there is an argument that Islam is standing in for, it is, represents a kind of nationalism. That is, it's opposed to the West, and in opposing the West, and in attaching itself to particular nation states, particular pieces of territory, Islam is expressing a, a nationalist sentiment rather than a spiritual religious sentiment. So it's because of this conflict with the West, starting with the colonial period, continuing through with the Six-Day War, the Gulf Wars, uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict. All of these things are mobilizing a nationalist response that is territorial and political rather than a spiritual response. So it's primarily territorial and political oriented against the West. So in that sense, a nationalist movement just in these two slides, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, but one way of thinking about religion uh, is th by using nationalism theory. So one, one argument is that religion is mo that, that modernization sparks religiosity. Uh, urbanization, social change, transformation, revolution, all of these things lead to an increase in religiosity. Another view, however, is that Actually, religious revival is linked to, uh, to revival of earlier cultural forms. So what's occurring, if we take ethno-symbolist theory, uh, one of the views is that political Islam represents a search for a golden age, a time in the past when the community was united and strong uh, and cohesive, and a desire to return to that period, except instead of return for nationalism, this tends to be a return to a golden age that might be a century or a couple centuries ago. It's not generally a golden age that is a thousand years ago. But in political Islam, that golden age tends to be the time of the prophet or of the caliphs. So, and so this, uh, this is actually going back over a thousand years. But it's still related to this idea of looking backwards to a golden age and trying to bring that into the present moment. So here, um, for the ethno-symbolists, they're saying, well, religious revival is not really a modern thing so much. Uh, I mean, it is modern to some extent, but it also builds on existing cultural repertoires. So it's not something that has just been 
invented out of thin air. There are um, exemplars from the past. So there have been Islamic revivals in the past. Uh, the Hanbali school, for example, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, these, these various, uh, these earlier forms of Islamic Puritanism are used as exemplars for present-day fundamentalism. So there are periods in the past where you had these moments of uh, fundamentalism. And so for, I think for the ethno-symbolists, they'd say, yes, we are in a fundamentalist moment, but that, that isn't something that's purely modern. There are uh, exemplars and there are examples from the past that show a very similar type of thing, where you have these religious revivals. Uh, and so we have to take seriously the idea that this could be about intellectual and ideological developments, and it's not just to do with urbanization or geopolitics. Uh, and that's kind of a culturalist argument as well. And, and also that Islamic fundamentalism needs to resonate with the existing understandings of people. And in that sense, you can't just invent anything and sell it to people. It has to be... Uh, it has to resonate with something, and there is that tradition um, of puritanical Islamist movements which have sought to uh, purge corruption within the, uh, within the clergy um, and, and to, to, to keep religion free of political influence. So all of those earlier Islamic revivalist movements for, for, um, from this perspective would be seen as important. So that's a kind of an important cultural argument. Last slide or two here. Um, so Sami Zubaydah then has talked a lot about Islamism as a nationalist movement. Uh, there's a few characteristics of political Islam that he focuses on. One is, again, that anti-foreign, generally anti-Western. Perhaps in, in Pakistan it could be anti-India. Uh, but generally anti-foreign uh, is one characteristic of both nationalism and political Islam. Recent, what's known as ressentiment, this envy or resentment of foreign values. Um, could be modern values, could be Western. Yeah? Is it anti foreign to another Islamist uh, nation or only? Yeah. What's that? Is, is it anti foreign in a sense that it's also anti other Islamisms? Mm, no, no, no. That's, if you're thinking about Sunni Shia, that's a, a separate issue. But this, no, this is mainly anti Western or anti Western liberal values. Uh, now, yes, there is an issue of Shia versus Sunni, which I, I don't want to get into here. That's not what this is about. But, but this uh, ressentiment is mainly a, a, a reaction, a response to Western modern values. And just as in nationalism, what you saw were countries that were more agricultural and less wealthy, such as Germany in relationship to France in the 18th century, they said, well, okay, we may not be as, we may not have the enlightenment like the French do. We may not have the same, uh, perhaps, economic development as Britain, but we are spiritually purer, more authentic. That sentiment, you could argue, is working as well in the case of political Islam, this idea, well, we're not maybe the richest or we don't have the most developed economy, but we spiritually uh, are, are more advanced. So it's that what's known as transvaluation, turning around, instead of uh, not being developed being a bad thing, you make it into a good thing. So transvalue it. Um, that seems to be a characteristic of both political Islam and 
nationalist movements. For Zubaydah, then, Sharia is, it's not that people are after Sharia for its ethical and spiritual value, but more as a symbol. So, so people like the idea of Sharia as a symbol against the West, maybe. So in that sense, it's about identity. It's not about the other world. It's about this world. Um, and then also, most Islamist movements, uh, the FIS in Algeria, for example, they operate within a national frame, not an international frame. They're most concerned about who's in power in Algeria or, or in Egypt, um, or if it's uh, Palestine, it's, it's Hamas and Fatah, well, it's, they're concerned with the secular uh, movements. So it's this operating within the national frame that suggests that nationalist motivations are important as well. Um, and even the international movements like Al-Qaeda are focused on particular nationalist conflicts such as those in Chechnya or the Philippines and so forth, rather than broad ones internationally. Um, to some extent, ISIS is maybe an exception to that, although initially focusing on Syria and the Syrian uh, conflict. Okay. Um, and then lastly, two Islamist regimes, and here's a, 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 the ex interesting example of Iran under the mullahs resurrecting nationalism. So at first they said, well, this is an international Islamist movement here in Iran. We're not really concerned about Iran. And then suddenly you had the Iran-Iraq war. And in fact, they started to invoke uh, many symbols of Iranian nationalism in that war. So, so, so that suggests then that within Islamism is contained also uh, a form of nationalism. So just to conclude then, uh, we first talked about secularization. And Steve Bruce has argued that secularization is occurring both in terms of the separation of religion from public life, the social, and also the decline of individual beliefs, individual membership of churches and attendance at churches. Um, others claim the United States is a counter to the secularization thesis because religion is much stronger there than in Western Europe. And the reason for that strength, according to some authors, is its diversity of religious communities. Uh, but again, others say, well, look, religion has actually started to decline quite substantially in the last 10, 15 years in the U.S. So that's not really a counter case. But what about, that brings us on then to a clear case of, of non-secularization or religious revival, and that's um, the Islamic revival and also the rise of political Islam. So there's been a resurgence of both Islamic religion and political Islam since the 1970s. Um, now, the argument then becomes what's behind that. Some say modernization has actually stoked up the Islamic revival and political Islam uh, because of, for, for several reasons. One is economic, that is urbanization, transformation of society, inequality. The other is cultural, uh, and that is that modern ideas of revolution of universalism have permeated into Islam and have decultured it and have actually fed a more puritanical version of Islam. And also the rejection of uh, established authority, which is part of modern culture, has also, and, and is, was part of the Protestant Reformation, has also played into this. And then there's a political argument to do with uh, the failure of secular nationalism, the decline of Marxism, the end of Marxism after the Cold War, 
of creating a vacuum into which political Islam has moved. And also a series of geopolitical events, including the um, 1967 uh, Arab-Israeli War and um, the Gulf Wars. So there are structural, cultural, and political explanations for the resurgence of political Islam. Secularization theorists would argue that the rise of is Islamism reflects insecurity, dislocation, and upheaval in the Muslim world and is arguably a temporary phase rather than a permanent rebuttal to the secularization thesis. Um, secularization thesis might also make the argument that Islamism is not, strictly speaking, a religious movement, but more like a nationalist movement, and in that sense, more like a secular political movement and that's concerned with territory and is concerned with politics. And so it's not necessarily a contradiction of the secularization thesis.